Hi, and welcome to this episode of the VFX Show. We are going, well, I was going to say back in time. It's a bit weird. We're Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Are we going back in time or are we uh, going forward with technology? Uh, any which way, it's the fifth Indiana Jones film, and I'm joined by uh, my co-host. Jason, how are you, mate? Uh, I am great. Currently in Queens, New York, not far from where this movie begins. Oh, yeah, of course. Hadn't thought about that. And Matt, how are you? I'm good here in Richmond, Virginia, where this movie okay. doesn't so, happen at all. So so this is the fifth Indiana Jones film, yeah? And I kept on thinking it was the fourth because I'd forgotten the fourth one. Yes. Um, so I think we all agreed that the third Indiana Jones film and the first Indiana Jones films are really good. Do we can we get consensus on that? Like I yeah. love I like Temple of Doom just as much, so we can Okay. Well, okay, we can, maybe a close second, but have your thing. But yeah, it's not in the my top, opinion, but. first Indiana Jones film, brilliant. Sean Connery in the third one, brilliant. Yep. Um, and uh and I think we'd agree that the fourth one had issues. We we like Kate Blanchett. I like Kate Blanchett. She's an Australian yeah. actress and she's very, very good. But the film didn't exactly leave me uh, hungering for more. And so now we have the fifth one. So let's start out our discussion by trying to place the fifth one relative to those other four. So Matt, like, is it does it deserve to be in the upper sort of set, or is it like, uh, why do they bother? Well, I mean, I think I think there's some great stuff in it, but uh, you know, is it a great movie? Like a gr- is it a great Indiana Jones movie? Like I'd probably put it in, you know, it's it's in that same zone as uh the crystal skull, maybe a little better than that. Um uh Temple of Doom. I haven't seen that in so long. I I can't really speak to that one. I should go back and revisit that at some point, but there's some great stuff in this. Like I will confess that the ending, which is, you know, going straight to the ending, the very ending, the appearance in the ending, the cameo at the end, like it totally worked for me. It got me. There's something about that relationship, uh, like a child from, from a, being a kid in the first uh, Raiders movie that really like it hooked me. There's some cool stuff in this. It's fun. It's a f- super fun ride. It's a fun summer movie, um, but it has some problems too, I, I'd I'd say. Okay, so Jason, where do you rate it? Uh, I think it's well above Crystal Skull. Uh, I it, it's probably it, it's probably I would put it maybe just below Temple of Doom, but with like a huge gap between it and Crystal Skull. Like it's not they're not like ne- you know neighbors. But that's same for me. It's 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 close. It's like it you could feel it like they're trying to get there, and for whatever reasons, you know whether it's just you know age or modern filmmaking or whatever it is, it, it, it's clunky. The writing I feel is clunky in parts. Um, and, but I, I had a friend who told me that he thought first and second acts were great and third act it fell apart. I felt the opposite. I felt like first and second acts were, were a little clunky in the third act. I thought they pulled it together really well. And it really like became an Indiana Jones movie in the third act. And to Matt's point, the sort of the way it wraps up is, I mean, I had tears, you know, like it's, and, and, you know, spoiler alert for most of it. I think we should not spoil the end, the ending, ending, uh, maybe for people, um, you know, but I, I get hit by the themes too. Like they just, he, not even just the yeah. main theme, just like his and Marion's theme or all these little tiny themes that pop up, like they work and they do them really well. Uh, I, it, overall, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. And just, he was a professor at Hunter College. I went to Hunter College. So, you know, <laughs> kind, right. of, kind of fun, kind of fun. But 
I enjoyed so it. So we're going to. So there's a lot to talk about in terms of visual effects, especially the first 55 minutes, uh, and we'll come to that as we will in a sec. But there's a couple of points I wanted to touch on first. Um, Phoebe Waller Bridge is somebody I really think is great. I've enjoyed mm -hmm. everything she's been in. I think, yeah. So as Helena Shaw. I thought she brought a lot to the franchise because once you get past yeah. the flashback of young Indy, yeah, it would be absurd to have, you know, Harrison Ford being sort of super physical in every respect. I mean, there's a great driving sequence with him, but she added a lot and she wasn't just sort of a useless um, uh, female role for no apparent reason. So both the actress and Helena, the character, I thought worked kind of well. What did you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I think you could make a, an Indiana Jones 6 and she could be the star. You know, I mean, I think there's something really compelling about her. She's she's a great performer. You know, she's a good writer. Like, um, she's super um, screen friendly. You know, she's she looks great on camera. She's tall and like really interesting looking and she seems witty, you know, super smart. She's got some great lines in this movie. Um, and I think, you know, she's a, a great addition to the to the story. She's kind of like a a Marion from Raiders, but kind of with a bit of the Sean Connery from the third film, you know, like there's a lot going on there. And I think, you know, she um yeah, she she brings a lot to the film as both like a compatriot, but also kind of a foil to the the wry humor and the dry wit of the indie character especially in his kind of cantankerous old man state yeah jason she, did you see her um one woman show fleabag which then became the tv show at all i've seen the tv show i have i think they just re-released like some remastered or some sort of one of her performances from the english original stage, stage. Uh, original stage thing i haven't seen the stage one i've seen the tv show i've heard yeah. it's phenomenal it is. It's. I've said it, it's phenomenal. It's uh, and it's phenomenal, and I guess relevant to this discussion because she is just literally sitting on a stool for the entire performance, and she, as a as a as she talks to the audience, she keeps on dropping in and out of characters like her sister, like other people that uh, were talking to her. She sometimes does it. Uh, sort of responding to questions that are never heard, sometimes to audio prompts that are like played off screen by obviously the production team. And sometimes she just pulls faces uh, that lets you see a move between characters. And when you see her do that and then realize she wrote it, it's like there's no doubt the woman's incredibly talented. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and she's um, incredibly natural, I think, which is what yeah. ultimately makes her so watchable is she never feels like she's acting. Uh, which she obviously yeah. is, but she's just feels very um, at ease in, in the, in the world of the scene. And then, and then her character, you know, is, is sort of unfolded from there, but at no point do you feel um, like any um, friction between her, like trying to create the character and like, and like really live in that world. Like she feels like she's as, qualified and i don't mean that i mean her character not her as an actor but mm -hmm. her her character feels as qualified to be in the scene as indy does which is very hard to do you know even in temple of doom you know the kate capshaw character is your classic damsel in distress of a sort she doesn't really mm -hmm. know much she's sort of she's the audience you know experiencing new things indy's the wizened you know archaeologist who knows everything and whatever and it was great to see in this uh, in this one, 
to your point, Mike, um, and I think Matt made this point also, that she knows as much as he does about most of these things. So mm-hmm. when we do get to that third act, the two of them can appreciate a moment that is foreshadowed in the first act um, that I, that is, you know, very, like you can see the awe on both of their faces instead of just his. And she's like, Oh, look at him. He's excited. I don't know what's going on. You know? Yeah. I mean, that her introduction to the film, she's clearly got archeological kind of uh, mm-hmm. historical knowledge, but I guess for me, she has a sassiness that is in mm-hmm. very much in the kind of where you want it to be in the zeitgeist at the moment. Like she's not, um, like she's an independent woman, but she didn't come off as if she was out of time. In other words, obviously it's set in the 60s, didn't feel yeah. like she was unbelievable as a 60s woman. Um, mm-hmm. So that was good, I thought. So I think she's also, sorry, she, I was just going to say too, I think she also in the script anyway, she serves as really, the audience proxy, you know, like here we are with our 80, 80, 81 year old Harrison Ford in the role who's, you know, he's still amazing. You know, he's great to watch on screen, but I think having her in that space too, like she, she feels like she's the voice of the audience, the, the subconscious of the audience. I felt like a couple of times she said things, you know, delivered lines that were in the script that really felt like that's kind of what I was just thinking, you know, which was cool. And can I shout yeah. out Teddy the kid? I mean, it was great to have another sort of sit kid sidekick, yeah, um, and have it be hers, you know. And and he really, you know, he was that, good. that kid was awesome. I forget his name, his 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 actual name, but Teddy was his character's name. And he, yeah, I mean, he's he fulfilled a lot of um, comedic, but also that that he was the sidekick, not her, you know, which was which I think was was cool. Teddy's played by Ethan Isidore. I, I I liked him character a lot. Plot problem with him, but we'll get to that maybe in a second. Um, the only thing I'd say about just jumping up a second is, as much as I liked Harrison Ford generally, and who doesn't, um, I've got to say he just felt better for me in uh, in 1923, the uh, TV show that he's just done, which I thought mm, was just yeah. so good, and he just felt like the right age and the right everything in that, and he just sat for me better in that. Having seen that and then seeing him in this, I I don't know, I kind of felt a little bit like it wasn't Harrison's best for what he's doing right now. It wasn't bad. It just was like if I hadn't seen, you know, 1923, I'd have. But anyway, I'd, him in that was just. Or I would argue best. him in, in the Apple TV show, uh, the, I can't remember what it's called now, where he's like a therapist. Oh, shrinking. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's the best part of that show. Like he's so good in it and he's so naturalistic. Like he's, and he's funny as all get out too. Turning to the business side of it for a second, much has been made of the fact that Indy isn't a huge box office hit and it comes on the heels of Disney not scoring a hit uh, with the Elementals and not scoring a hit with Marvel's Ant-Man. So that's three huge aspects of the Disney movie empire, Pixar, Marvel, and, you know, what could be described as kind of, you know, cinematic royalty, the indie franchise from Lucas and um, and Spielberg. What do you guys think? Do you, do you think the media has overplayed that? I mean, it didn't seem like indie is a failure. I thought the film was successful, um, but anything short of spectacularly successful. But I think the films haven't, none of them are looking like they're making a billion, which seems to be the current benchmark. Any thoughts on well, that? Well, indie's, indie's only been out for a week, you know what I mean, right? Like it came out July 4th weekend. So it's like, might be a little premature to to 
I mean, I'm not. Well, I'm even not when it was like, shown at Khan, when it was shown at Khan, there was a big thing about it wasn't given a seven minute standing ovation. It, like. it doesn't need that movie doesn't need to be shown at Khan. Like I just, I, it's an action. I know it's a legacy film. It's not. It's not. If it was like an art film, if like if he if Mangold had done with Indy what he did with Logan, I could see different. But like I don't, I don't think he did that. I wish he I wish he had taken a little bit more of the what he did with Patrick Stewart with, you know, Professor X and and Wolverine and Logan and done that here. I don't know how much control he has over, you know, what they let him do in that versus this is like, to your point, Mike, a giant franchise royalty thing. It's, you know, to be fair, that's where I think the clunkiness comes in is you can feel him fighting. You can feel the script fighting where it wants to be versus where it is. And there's just these beats that they keep trying to hit. Now, I I appreciate that they kept him in like the Nazi vibe because that's his thing, right? That I think does keep him to your point, Matt. Like or or uh, Mike, did you say 1923 or the you know mm-hmm. well wouldn't 23 yeah. would be? Or sorry, the show is 23. I got it. Yes, it was 35 to 37 or whatever 38. Um, in the other movies, I think that's smart to keep him in that zone. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if that movie is destined to this new new one has the same appeal to the audience. You know what I mean? Like there's fatigue, there's all sorts of stuff and people might be like, "Oh, I don't need to see an 83-year-old Indiana Jones." There's a lot of barriers to entry to the film, I feel like. Um well, but it's maybe, not like you know, a lot of money. It has to hit a youth audience, and the youth yeah. audience isn't reminiscing when they were before they were born watching Indiana yeah. Jones, right? Yeah. Exactly. A youth audience or an international audience. I think if you look at the success yeah. of something like Avatar, I mean, a huge amount of its success is is predicated by its performance in, you know, greater China, right? I mean, in terms of the number mm-hmm. of screens and stuff and the and the accessibility of that film to a broader um, international audience. And I think the thing about Indiana Jones, like, you know, I, I have a lot of nostalgia for that character, for sure. I think we all kind of would share that. And probably a lot of, you know, people in certainly in North America, maybe in Australia, like in Europe, maybe some people feel that too. Like, but I don't know that it's going to have the same broad appeal globally. And so its ability to perform, uh, especially the fifth in a series, you know, where the lead is, you know, an older gentleman, you know, he's a huge box office superstar, but, you know, is he an action hero? Like, is he an action superstar? Like, I mean, they, they we, do a great job in this movie of making him that, but it's like, I could see where movies in general are struggling to perform right now, I think, you know? And so can, these kind of franchise films, like, do they hold up? Do they continue to draw an audience? Yeah. Hard to I would say. argue also the, the quest is very obscure. So like the first movie's the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody knows what that is. Second one is like India and you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, like some, some broader Indian mysticism. And so maybe that's why Temple of Doom doesn't hit so hard. And then of course the third one is the Holy Grail, which everybody knows about. Right. And then fourth one, Crystal Skull. Aliens. Other problems, but (laughs) not a lot of people know about the Crystal Skulls, right. Cause they're all based in some like Lucas's sort of, you know, known, uh, excitement for like cool, mystical, historical stuff. Right. And so this one is based on two things. One, the initial basically Spear of Destiny um, uh, Lance tip, which is 
which is a real thing, you know, or what, you know, biblically is a real thing. Uh, it is an artifact Hitler wanted because Hitler wanted all the same stuff Constantine wanted way back in the 300 or whatever. And now you get then to the Antictheria, which is a real thing that nobody is knows it? what it does. Yeah, really? that's a real, yeah, it is, yeah, it it's is a, a real, real thing. thing. Yeah. Nobody knows what it does. It exists. <laughs> yeah. And, and they've been trying to figure out what it does forever. And so this is based on probably some conspiracy theory somewhere, as all of these things are based on in, in not in the classical use of the term conspiracy theory. Um, and so they made a movie around it as Lucas does, right? That's his, one of his things, but it's very obscure. Like people don't know Archimedes and all the kind of stuff and the, the battle of Syracuse. I think we know not Archimedes, a, but yeah, I don't know. Well, no, you a, do. A, a elaborate but the, clock mechanisms. <laughs> but the general public, I don't think really is thirsting for quests for Archimedes. There, there was items. a time where the Anthicara, or how we say it, mechanism. Antictheria, uh, yeah. Where it, it would have been more in the popular zeitgeist. It, there's a huge National Geographic uh, magazine uh, piece that was done now several years ago about the mm -hmm. finding of the device and uh, the research of it into like, what did it do? Like, what was it for? Like, you know, some people think it was, you know, a navigation thing or some sort of a, a early clock or something that was tracking the movement of the stars or whatever, you know, there's all these speculation, but, um, you know, in, in an earlier time, sort of pre-internet, that would have been something that would have a much broader cultural, yeah. um, kind of capture of the global imagination. But I think in the internet age, the diffusion of information and knowledge, like it's just yeah. like, oh yeah, cool. Like an ancient machine that's found in a shipwreck, you know, like buried at the bottom of the Aegean or wherever they found it. I can't remember. And they don't even get into the the time travel aspect of it till the third act. Like it's yeah. not even like you're like, yeah, oh, like you don't even they... know what it does, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you can kind of guess and whatever. I will say, and I was very nervous for about 10 minutes in the third act because they set up a causal Wait, loop. Uh, yep, I know exactly what you're going to say. Yep. Exactly. And I was like, oh my God, please don't yep. fuck this up. Please yep. don't fuck up the causal loop. You've already, I now you've told me where it's going. I know where it was. I know where all the pieces were. And you please, that has to stay there. And then they find, they, they closed it. And I was like, oh God, thank you. <laughs> like, because that would have just, that would have just ruined it. So I was like, okay, thank you. Someone thought about it somewhere. Okay. So we're about to get to visual effects, but before we do, yes. can we just poke a couple of obvious, <laughs> massive bus sized holes in the plot? Of course. <laughs> just for the fun of it. So the first one is this mechanism. Yeah. This ancient Greek hand powered, earliest known kind of predictive computer of the stars. It works perfectly well, having been at the bottom of the ocean, and all you have to do is kind of like what I mean. It was they once said, "Oh, it's in wax." Like somehow this miraculously meant that a mechanical mechanism from two thousand years ago would be so accurate that it would be affected or not affected because I couldn't work that out by the shifts of the tectonic <laughs> plates of the Earth. Well, no, so, it was affected. Well, that's why they went to Syracuse instead of no, Germany. No, because no, because then it was like there was a later bit of dialogue where he says, "No, no, it was never about time travel. It was only about coming home." Right? Well, yeah, because it was oh, it was right. Archimedes had built it to right. bring people back. You know, yeah, yeah. it was like he needed. Yeah. And so, he, so yeah. that's okay. So the fact <laughs> that it's a causal loop because they had always done it. You know, what I mean? okay. Yeah. But yeah. the fact that this thing actually worked in the future, as in present day, kind of all the. 60s was absurd to the point of like having a 
trouble kind of believing it. The next one is you're terrifically, uh, you know, your, your point about the the stars of the show, right? Um, what's the kid's name again? Sorry. Um, Teddy. Teddy. Okay. So you, you, you point out that Teddy uh, is, you know, a great character. I understand that. But there's a point in the third act where it's basically, hey, we're going to need a, another plane. Hey, Teddy, yeah. can you just go over there for no apparent reason and get in a plane? I'm not going to join you, though I'm telling you to get the plane. And you've never actually flown a plane before. But if you could, would you mind just taking this plane and flying? I know you're a kid. I know I'm placing you in enormous danger because you've never been yeah. in a plane before. And I can't think why I need you to fly a plane because I'm not going to get in the plane. But I just have a feeling if you were to get in a plane right now that you've never piloted before and follow us, that might be useful later in the story. Well, and into the worst rainstorm ever that yeah. most pilots probably couldn't pilot through. Yeah, they showed him, then, But they showed him rehearsing. It, yes, like when he was flying fake planes, you know, like he was in cardboard. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I know that that when I was driving a car, all I had to do was practice with a you know top of a saucepan lid for driving, and I was good to drive a car. So, so I'm sure the same is true with planes. And then my third major like ridiculous plot point is these notional time rifts are like quite a lot of uh, up in the air, off the earth floating around somewhere. So uh, riddle me this, Batman, right? One, how the heck is Archimedes meant to be dealing with something that is happening several hundred, if not thousand feet up in the air? Like that seems like a really weird place for Archimedes to be. And then secondly, there wasn't this sort of predictive model telling them where on earth this thing was going to happen, right? Which would require coordinates or some kind of GPS system of identifying a place, <laughs> a particular point in space. And now, if I'm not mistaken, when Archimedes was hanging out, we didn't have a really good geo satellite system for identifying places on the Earth, or a good latitude or longitude system that we just have in a oh I don't know an atlas. So this device would give me coordinates that existed in a three-dimensional accurate representation of the Earth, so accurate that the movement of the plates of the earth would affect it or not affect it, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like he was saying it would happen exactly at this point, several thousand feet up in the air at this particular set of coordinates, but he didn't have a coordinate system. And even if he did, it wouldn't have been that accurate. Now, I know that they were good back then and actually working out like very complicated problems with maths far beyond what you think someone would be able to do 2000 years ago, but that doesn't give them a universal location system. Did I miss something there? Uh, no, but this is the, this is the Spider-Man argument. <laughs> this is our original, our original physics Spider-Man argument. Yeah. But, but the premise uh, is yeah. that no, I hear you. shows yeah, you where course. to go and there's no yeah. way that he could have even I don't, um, yeah, I don't written a piece of paper them. where to go. I don't recall them. Um, they, they think they have to, I don't recall them saying why they need to be in the air in this particular I think it was like fly in this direction until the things come together. That's at least visually how they how they were, you know, uh, showing that you were close. But there was no other made a made a pretty explicit point things. in the plot of saying this showed you where on earth these time fishers would be. No, no, I know. Well, actually, do they say that or when they would be? I can't remember. No, I think it was uh, where they would be. But I, is it I where? will say that. Yeah. I, well, I appreciate this uh, uh, diversion. I didn't really think about that at all. I didn't consider. Yeah, I didn't either. 
Like it it was one of the, it was a a suspension of disbelief I was willing to engage in, at least for the, for an Indiana Jones movie, which, you know, strangely enough, I think if you think even back to the Raiders of the Lost Ark, like there is, and there's a line in this movie where he talks about, you know, I've seen things I can't explain or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Right. And I think there has always been an element of, you know, the supernatural, uh, you know, mysticism of magic. Mm -hmm. Well, they made a big point in this one that this wasn't supernatural. This was just maths. Yeah. Well, so if you're going to say this what, is uh, just maths. That's what the they great, said. Uh, that's what Mads the, said. Yeah, the great Mads Mikkelsen, well, but, of course. <laughs> yeah. Can I say but they all say out? that? But but there's but but what's his name also like Belloc doesn't think that there's a like uh, a monster you know or or demons are going to come out of the box and kill them. He thinks it's a power source of some kind, but it's you know okay. Some f- can I can I also do a shout thing. out to to Big Bang Theory, the TV show, for the greatest line <laughs> ever when they went. So that Indiana Jones film, didn't you think it was great? And and the line is like, well, if you think about it, he made no difference to what happened. Had he not even been there, the same yeah, outcome didn't. would have happened. The whole film, his yep. character doesn't matter at all. Anyway, it's okay, enough of that. True. Right? Enough of that. Let's get to the visual effects. 23 minutes at the beginning, we've got Indiana Jones as a younger man. What did we think? Matt, what did we think? Did it look like a visual effects sequence in terms of his face. I know he's, there are other things like running on trains and stuff, but did, or did it actually for you just look like it was a Harrison Ford that could have been filmed if somehow that had been possible? There are things about it that are really successful. I'll say that. Like there are things about the face uh, that really work. Like, and seeing him, you know, young in a new scene that work great, but there are things that don't work. And there are things that don't work because I think they can't. Um, it's one of the things we talked about when we talked about the Irishman, um, the carriage, the carriage of the body, right? As we mm-hmm. age, the 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 sort of narrowing of the shoulders, the the way in which the body and the the chest and the abdomen. I mean, he's in great shape. Don't get me wrong, but like we change, we change as we age, and we move in a different way, and our um, you know, the, the way in which we, um, ambulate, uh, is altered through, uh, our, just our, the changes in our physical form as we get older. And so you had, uh, Harrison Ford, uh, playing himself and they do the, uh, kind of the deep fake CG, kind of the whole kit and caboodle version of the face replacement. And it looks great, but there are things that don't, even in the face that don't work that bothered me, which was like, you know, the loss of collagen in the skin as you age and the way in which his, if you look at old films of Harrison Ford, you know, the, Hey, it's me, you know, kind of stuff. And the, and even the Raider stuff, like the cheeks, his cheeks move, his cheeks move up and down, his cheeks move with, you know, his big grin, his big toothy grin. And there wasn't any of that. There was a, there's a deadness in the sides of the face. And I don't think that's a technological problem. I just think it's a performative difference in the data that's being used to generate the movement of the fake. You know, I I would guess, I don't know, but, um, and it just doesn't look quite the same, but overall, does it work? Yeah. I mean, I think overall it works well. Like if, does, is the average person going to go in there and look at this and say, that looks really fake. Like I can't, no, I just don't think that most people are going to notice it and they're going to see it as far as the kinds of things that we've seen like this, whether it's the Irishman or the Luke Skywalker in, um, was it Mandalorian or Boba Fett? I can't mm-hmm. remember which one, but, Boba but, Fett. Um, 
and and Boba the, uh, the slash Mandalorians insight into Boba Fett. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The young Mark Hamill um, return, and and this, you know, uh, I think this is good. It's it's as a visual effect, it's super exciting to see that kind of de aging, that kind of visual effect of bringing an actor back to the sort of primacy of their of their you know earlier performance of the same character. It's exciting. It's really cool, and it's. Overall, it's really well done. So, Jason, what do you think? Is this better than The Irishman? Or was it? Did it sell for you, or did you sort of feel like, uh, you, oh my god, motion visual effects? I will admit, I didn't see The Irishman. However, I was—I mean, look, from a nostalgia standpoint, and from like a kid in in my my inner child was like, that's fucking awesome. Like it, it had the style. It had the the. The swagger, not the physical swagger to Matt's point, but the the yeah. emotional swagger. It's his face a million percent, the stubble, the it looks exactly the way he does in Raiders when he's like punches a dude and catches the cap and you know puts on the jacket that's too small in Raiders. Mm-hmm. It looks exactly like that dude. And and I was I was I'm in I'm in for it. I'm in it. Like, are there moments that that where it kind of breaks a little bit for me, it was less the like really like underlying musculature kind of like performative stuff. And for me, it was more like lighting cues that kind of messed up the, whatever was happening where stuff didn't, whatever technique they're using to do the face replacement uh, and the neck, of course, um, didn't play well with certain contrast um, ratios of light. Uh, and, you know, they do try to keep that classic like window of light across his face mm-hmm. um, in a lot of that stuff. But there was a couple moments and I notated him in my brain in the film and I forgot them. But in, they're in that opening sequence where he kind of something happens and he looks and the face looks a little like cocked and corked because I think whatever there. I mean, there must be a model of some kind being used on top. Of, I mean, uh, however, they're doing it at that moment from the turn of the face, the geometry is changing too much, I think for something to catch up yeah. and it's so fast. Like, again, the average audience won't catch it. Um, overall, I thought it was incredibly successful. Uh, I think uniquely to all, a lot of the other things we've seen and Harrison Ford pointed this out in a bunch of interviews is they have miles of footage of him yeah. at Lucasfilm from all three Indiana Jones films, all three star Wars films, right. you know, they just have reams and reams of outtakes and him looking in different directions before they say action. And they have so much reference material from that Deep period. Library. Yeah. I mean, the model must be incredibly fat, you know, for them to be able to, to pull from it on top of the fact that you have the actual actor doing it, which at, you know, certain times you don't, and it's a base actor doing other things like uh, the digital uh, Rachel in 2049, you know, um, and things like that. I, I it, it's the best I've seen. And certainly I think the reason it's the best I've seen is because it also is underpinned by emotion, uh, you know, by the viewer, not strictly a technical exercise, uh, for me. So, so for the one that you guys haven't mentioned for me was not so much the cheeks. It was the eyes. There were a couple of shots mm. where it felt like the eyes weren't looking, uh, weren't focusing in correctly. Um, I should also point out to your point, Matt, that in the credits, because I have no insider knowledge on this, um, there were multiple other actors playing or stunt hmm. people playing Indiana that 
so I don't think it was just Harrison Ford who's, you know, having his face replaced. Also, let's unpack that for a second, right? Because, and again, I don't have any inside knowledge on this, and I'm looking forward to being able to talk to ILM about it. But so, okay, so a classic deep fake in adverted commas is we take Jason's face and put it on Matt's body. Yeah. So that would be taking Harrison's Ford's face and putting it on a stunt person's body, which is stunt work that's done and it's been done in a bunch of Marvel films. That doesn't work here because Harrison Ford has to be de-aged to go there. And then there is just straight de-aging work of which if we think about it, um, I'm surprised you guys didn't reference this because for me, the landmark for de-aging was uh, Captain America in 2011 mm-hmm. and the work that Lola did. Um, because when I saw Skinny Steve, Steve Rogers, um, oh, Chris yeah. Evans, that to me was just jaw-dropping mm-hmm. like moment in time where I was like, yeah. you know, profound effect on me in terms of like where visual effects were going. And that was, you know, what, like 12 years ago at least, yeah? Mm-hmm. Maybe 13, depending on when they did the work. Um, but it came out in 2011, right, Captain America, I think. But anyway, and there have been some less successful uh, de-agings, like um, I think in one of the Ant-Man, uh, I felt like the de-aging of uh, Douglas was like a little weird around the edges. But having said that, the work that Lola has done, which was none of it involving AI or machine learning deep fake tech, right? Lola mm-hmm. did this with um, hardcore, normally Flame back in the day. Uh, so I don't know if they still use Flame, but they really were a Flame house doing the de-aging work. And that was just hardcore visual effects. So it'll be easy for the popular press to kind of assume that they pressed the de-age button on Harrison Ford and ILM themselves have already come out publicly and said, no, 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 there was like hundreds of artists, or if not a hundred artists that worked on de-aging. So if you went down the Lola path, you don't need any AI, any machine learning, and you come up with um, a de-aged character. And then the third option is the... um, Irishman model, where the Irishman model had multiple cameras on the main camera. So in the Irishman, mm-hmm. they had like a primary camera. And if you look at behind the scenes on uh, Amiga Man, they have two other cameras on the outside of it, making a hugely um, <clears throat> bulky rig, but that allowed them to uh, to get sort of a stereoscopic kind of uh, thing. Well, they were and, infrared modified yeah. Alexa minis or something, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Get all the skin texture and everything. Yeah. And I guess the last way you can do it is you can just make a digital version of someone and sculpt them to be younger. Like you put them in a light stage and in Medusa and you come up with a 3D model and the 3D model is then crafted by somebody that makes the nose smaller, the ears smaller, lifts the jowls, uh, removes wrinkles, et cetera. Um, And in doing that version, you are just making 3D and then you try and render it. And certainly that is what... um, so it was Weta that did uh, Amiga Man, right? I don't know what I... I referenced Amiga Man a second ago. I don't know why I did. But um, yeah. You mean Gemini was, Man? Um, Gemini Man. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Gemini sounds Man. like Omega Man. That's <laughs> really oh, sorry, like okay. Charlton yeah. Heston. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My cold dead hands. I remember that. Anyway, uh, um, yes. So, uh, so that... I thought that was the pinnacle of CG de-aging. Like it was yeah. not yeah. done primarily through machine learning and AI, it was done. I, the I Gemini got, Man? Yeah. 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 Weta used some machine learning in yeah. the process, but it was primarily a um, uh, a CG solution. 
and right. not a machine learning inferred solution. It wasn't neural rendering, in other words, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that um, I do know that ILM has been um, thinking about and doing, which is really interesting, is, uh, and they used it on, which film it was, I was talking to them when I was over there recently and I'll have to look it up, but on one of the films, they, I think it was John Knoll came up with the idea, they would use machine learning not to find, not to make the frame of an actor, but to find that actor in that pose, looking in that direction from the archive footage they have. So let's oh, imagine, and I'm, okay. I don't know this to be fact. I mean, so I know that they did this, but I don't know if they did it on this film. Um, well, it would make sense but, given the given the reams of yeah you know stuff they have. But in in the ILM pantheon of tools, they have a tool that lets you say, okay, I've got all of the notional footage of Jason Diamond. We he's been in loads of films. He's really great. Give me angles of Jason looking to the left, uh, you know, in bright sunlight, kind of thing. And it would find those frames. So then you would have great reference for you know. Uh, nailing something down. It's like a reverse image lookup, basically. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of stuff uh, that I think ILM probably threw at this. Um, and I think it is hugely successful in the film. Like, I think I'd agree with Matt, like people yeah. watching it. But I think it's going to get characterized. Maybe we'll get a different view at SIDGRAPH, but it's going to be characterized as being deep fake. And I feel like that's a real mistake because mm. this just isn't. I don't think it's a deep fake. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, I wouldn't call it that. Also, I came across, a, I'll send it to you for the show notes like, or the images at least. I came across a, a link or tweet of someone shared the hand-sculpted latex masks that they made for the stuntmen to wear. <laughs> and there, there's like, you know, the, the unfinished ones. And then there's like, you know... Um, medium age indie and, and old grumpy face indie. Um, and they show a dude standing in it and you're like, it, I mean, from certainly from a camera's point of view, you wouldn't and never know it's not Harrison Ford and that's just latex. Right. And then if you yeah. were to then use this model in or other techniques, not to de-age, obviously you're not going to do that in this case, but to de-age or, I mean, sorry, to manipulate the face or something from there, you'd be like, 90% close to his face already. And they're probably for wides, obviously, but. The yeah, illusion. In a wide article. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I think the illusion overall is pretty successful throughout, you know. I think the things that um, I think were challenging from a visual effects standpoint in that first opening sequence, which is, you know, really well crafted and staged and something that's exciting to watch. But I think some of the uh, on the train uh, effects on the, on the train top, some of the shots of the train sort of traveling off into sort mm -hmm. of from camera left to camera, right. Sort of watching it. It's almost like a helicopter style shot. The, the, the physics, the speed of movement was to me felt mm -hmm. fast, like Keystone copish in ways. And then some of the stuff on top of the train had a real, uh, like there was something about it that made it look like a, a dated kind of visual effects. I don't know if that was a stylistic choice, but it had like a less of a no, it I agree. Felt less I think real and like more like a wide a shot, planar and two dimensional. Wide shot of the train yeah. going left to right, where you see Indy running across the top of the train. Oh, He's that like was terrible. Really small. Yeah, and I was just no way I felt you could run against that wind at that speed 
And it just felt like it was, yeah, not Un- a unnatural. Well, yeah. for me, yeah. it wasn't the, I mean, I didn't even take in that stuff into account. I was just looking at the character running and I was like, that looks like a digital character. Like it yeah. didn't, yeah. like if, if they would have just had him walking like this, like against yeah. the thing, like a, yeah. like a five-step walk cycle, I think it would have been more successful than him like running across the train. I'm, I'm I mean, curious. There's been lots of on top of train fight sequences, right? Oh, for sure. Oh. I was going to ask, saw, though, I'm curious about what you think of the de-aged Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, I thought that was less successful, um, but partly I think it was, um, well, I, I phys- visually thought it was less successful in the skin textures, which mm. had what somebody else described as kind of like an inner glow, like the subsurface scattering just didn't look right on his mm-hmm. cheeks. And then I wasn't sure if the, if the glasses were affecting it or not, but um, I definitely didn't feel it was bad but i didn't feel it was successful as indie um yeah so so they used a bunch of stuff right they used apparently their flux system which is infrared camera stuff they also did get harrison ford according to wide magazine uh in a rig with dots on his face so they did scans which would make sense right i think i think the point i wanted to make is that this has got to be a variety of techniques and there is not one Mm -hmm. solution that solved everything but um but to get back to your point about knowing Harrison Ford so well, uh, I got de-aged uh, in a test we did, and it looks really good unless you side-by-side it, because we did a de-aging of me to make me look like I was 10 years younger based on a clip we had of me. And then once we had that done, we you can play it side-by-side with the original clip filmed on a good quality camera from 10 years ago. And so when you see the real footage, you go, oh, okay. So we didn't quite nail it on these uh, wrinkles and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, ILM is much better than us. And this test was great, but it wasn't, you know. But the point is, I think you benefit when you you only remember what Harrison Ford looks like. You don't Mm -hmm. intercut it with actual Harrison Ford stuff. Yeah, well, totally. Um, And with Mads, I don't know. Somehow it seemed like the jump was less of an age jump. So consequently... It felt a little bit more like I was like Harrison Ford in the <clears throat> ninety other uh, in the sixties when he's eighty looks so different than he did back then that you're not kind of got an A and B that's to compare with. Whereas mm-hmm. with Mads, I sort of felt like oh he doesn't look that vastly different. Like men yeah. change a lot in their seventies and eighties, but in that kind of forties, fifties, and sixties, you know you change. I certainly had changed in weight in my test. But nevertheless, it's like you're kind of a bit closer to sort of seeing. So somehow, I don't know, with you, I thought that Mad just didn't seem like such a, a, a good Danish jump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly didn't even realize that they had de-aged him in the opening sequence. I thought it was really? just like light. I, I, to me, it just looked like light. Like it didn't stand out to me. Maybe I was just so enamored with the Harrison Ford stuff. But well, that's good. The, the Mad stuff is really like his stuff is very plain. Like there's no it's there's not a lot of drama to his it's it's you know shadow and light and stuff passing and sometimes he's like you know scrambling and on the ground but it didn't i wasn't like oh look how young he looks uh well it, he's kind it's, of it's it a stone face kind of performance too yeah. he's not a jovial yeah. like you know yeah, yeah. there's not a lot chipper guy he's kind of a dark yeah a dark fellow yeah yeah, in terms so of the didn't top of the train sequence, me, the top of the train yeah. sequence is interesting because I wonder if it is true to Matt's point that this was kind of a stylistic choice because it because hmm. there have been so many on top of train sequences and uh, and uh, like the Lone Ranger ILM did one right with uh, was pretty successful, but 
I just saw Mission Impossible, and I'm sure I have an upcoming show on it, and that has a top of the train sequence. And in that, it's more realistic than the Indiana Jones one. But then again, I'm wondering, like, did they want the Indiana train sequence from the past to look like a serial think, thriller kind of? Yeah, could be. Old I mean, school. the guy holds, when they're in the tunnel, the guy holds Indy up against the ceiling and he's going, oh, 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 you know, like that's, that is not accurate to the violence of what would happen <laughs> to him. You know, so it's like, I, I think that you're probably right, Matt, in your assumption. There is, I'm not, I'm not saying that they intentionally went for an execution of X, but to your point, Matt, Mike, there, I, it seems to me there probably was some reference to, I mean, look at the, the, the Minecraft se- minecart sequence in right. Temple of Doom. Like, yeah. you know, that's a mixture of miniatures and other things and tinfoil that Mirren made with a stop motion, you know, rig and like, you know, it's 800 techniques, but it's just made to be a fun ride. And obviously we know Indy isn't going to die because it's in the past. And we know from the trailer, we see him in the future. So it's just like that adventure. Every Indiana Jones movie opens with a, a sometimes related, but not always related, uh, caper you know adventure yeah, and then yeah. you get into the expository dip it's like where the they Bond set you up for the whole thing yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly. and i think they, they if there's a stylistic thing happening in that opening train sequence it's really maybe there's a it's at night and it feels like it's yeah it's kind of misty or foggy right like they're kind of moving mm-hmm. through a lot of clouds i don't know if maybe that's smoke from the the train yeah, engine or something steam and whatnot but um so i think that that also maybe plays into a decision that's made both stylistically, story-wise, but maybe technically too, and that having everything happening at night in light and shadow too, it it gives another um, opportunity for the effects to really play well um, or play better maybe than they would in broad daylight. So can we discuss three other sequences? I'm going to run out of time, but three other sequences. One is the New York um, chase sequence on the horse. The next is the um, whichever Middle Eastern uh, Moroccan type uh, where they do the chase, uh, car chase. Talk, talk, chase, and then the yeah. third one is the is the uh, Archimedes um, battle sequence. So just yeah. from a visual mm-hmm. effects point of view, and I'll shut up about any of my concerns about anything else, right? <laughs> about realism. So for those three those sequences, would any of those stronger or better for you? I mean, I'll lead off by saying I felt the chase in the '60s New York. Um, yeah, I presume it's New York, but anyway, the where yeah. the um, astronauts. Uh, having the parade that felt very much like paramount black backlot to me it didn't not necessarily in a bad way but it just felt like oh this is the backlot like it's it's i'm 100 sure i've got digital extensions right left and center mm-hmm. but that felt again like yeah this is what i remember backlots looking like when people shoot in those streets in uh in new york uh on in la's uh stage but anyway there's, so what do you think of those sequences? Any of them sort of really stand out or or not for you is, is not working? Yeah, I mean, Jason, I, what do you I think? would... Oh, oh sorry, sorry Jason, you go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I think I, I thought the... I mean, I was going to say, I thought the New York stuff, the recreation of 60s New York was actually, in my opinion, the most successful. It did feel stylized. And I remember thinking in my head during the parade, watching the confetti fall, 
everything was composed to the nines, like the frame and the, the displacement and positioning of each piece of like ticker tape falling, like was so perfectly composed that there wasn't enough noise and chaos in the imagery. Like it almost felt too like Norman Rockwell idealized Americana kind of vibe. Um, I thought that was the most successful of the sequences you mentioned, because I actually thought I found the Morocco sequence and even more than the Morocco sequence, although I think it has some of the same problems, but I think the final sequence, the Archimedes, uh, you know, the, whatever they called it, the Archimedes yeah. death ray sequence or whatever, um, to be one of the least successful from a visual effects standpoint. And the, the other one suffered from that a little bit when that there was a lot of, uh, things that I think are difficult in visual effects shots where the backgrounds feel it's a thing that I, I think it always irks me as a, as a compositor is like, it feels planar. It feels like there's these different planes that are structured. The depth mm -hmm. of field doesn't quite feel right. The lighting feels like on the, on the actors in the foreground, but then on the, the action in the mid ground and the action in the background, it feels different. And there's this stylistic uh, variation between the photographed actors performances. When we see like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Harrison Ford in the Morocco sequence, they're talking in the foreground. And then we see Morocco in the distance and the, 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 like the bounce, the lighting on them is so hot, so bright, but it's really balanced with what's happening in the background. Like we're not seeing greater diffusion at a distance. Like it feels like there's no, there were things in it that made it feel really like fake, like it, it just didn't look real. And you could make the case that, okay, again, it's a stylization choice and it's kind of a serial, like going back to these old serials and that kind of aesthetic. But I just felt like the consistency in those sequences, it was less successful as a set of visual effects, sort of shot design and execution. And it just took me out of the film a little bit in both of those sequences where I was, I became more conscious of uh, the effects than I would have, uh, or, or than I did in the New York sequence. I mean, I, I, I would tend to agree maybe halfway. I do think the New York one was the most successful from a story perspective, like, or, and when I say story, I mean the story of that scene, not the overarching story. Uh, from an overarching story point, I thought the Archimedes sequence is what tied everything together story-wise, maybe not ex yeah, visual story -wise, wise for sure. Anyway, uh, I thought interesting that you brought up the, the New York, like feeling like photographs kind of, which is an interesting angle, like that they're trying to, you know, maybe plant in your brain, these like kind of iconic sixties, New York, you know, photos. I thought the, the feel of that sixties, New York section until he leaves New York had a very specific look. It was super warm, very um, bloomy. It was it felt like mm. a lot of you know diffusion in the whites when he goes yeah. outside. Um, but I did like that sequence overall. Um, it had your it had your more classic chase thing and and uh, I mean the horse, horse like, you know yeah <laughs> like, a horse, you gotta have a horse you know the horse going down the subway tracks obviously yeah. that's fantastical but. Fun. Yeah, but it's super fun and it, 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 it sort of tied back to that, you know, that early serial mm -hmm. nature. The, my problem with the Morocco one and my kid even was next to me and every time they'd cut inside, he'd be like, that's a wall, right? Like meaning an LED wall mm. uh, because it felt like they were, you have these kind of broader shots, which are 
a mix of live action and CG, pro- obviously, for mm-hmm. for various reasons. Um, and and you have these interior shots where you have to get across tons of dialogue while they're just like blazing down the street in between two things, not between two things. You know, there's always a lot of talking during the during the during those scenes, I felt like with the Morocco scene, they were trying to get back to the first indie for the first Raiders movie where he's looking for uh, Marion in that really protracted uh, Cairo thing, which of course there works really great. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, Mangold clearly went back to the visual language for a lot of that stuff too. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people like popping into the foreground and then walking away and someone else walks in the foreground. Um, but from a visual effects standpoint, I, it's all to your point. The, all the stuff inside the tuk tucks just felt like stage inserts, yep. and mostly because the because of lighting. Because you can't have hard light. Like even though it might be accurate that sun would hit them with light, but the wall behind them in these narrow alleys wouldn't get sun. Like that might be physically true, but in an action sequence like that, it doesn't like it doesn't read like that because you're not really there. You know, you say in the broader context, you you said something that I feel like it perfectly encapsulates what I think the issue is with both of those sequences. Now, the the it was Istanbul. Is that what we're saying? The the sequence Uh, Morocco, Morocco. Morocco. Yeah, sorry, the Morocco sequence. But we're just calling Morocco. Okay, (laughs) that sequence where it's kind of you know supposed to be you know modern day within the context of the story. When you talk about that Cairo sequence, I remember as a kid watching for Raiders of the Lost Ark, there was a special on TV and they showed how mm-hmm. they they were shooting in in Cairo and they realized that they're all the little t- Cairo in Jordan. Right, yeah. that's right. And they had to take all the TV antennas yeah. down because it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been period. And yeah. when you go back and watch that, that Raiders sequence that's in supposed to be in Cairo, right? The naturalism, the realism... The, yeah, sunlight. The, the sort of, for a Western audience, you know, forgive this, this sounds kind of imperialistic, but the exoticism of being in that location, it's real because mm-hmm. they really yeah. are there. And it, it makes it, it gives so much believability to the story. That kind of location shooting, I know is extremely expensive. It's difficult, you know, to secure, but I feel like those are the things that obviously they couldn't go back to uh you know, the, the Peloponnesian wars or whatever, shoot. But I mean, not being on location uh, for some of that stuff, if if some if a lot mm-hmm. of these things are what they looked like, which felt like artificial environments and backgrounds, they just don't, they, they at least what they achieved in this, it just didn't work in the same way. Like it's not terrible Agreed. work, like it's stylized, it's kind of cool, it's interesting visually. And so I'm not slighting anybody for, for it just it'd be better to go on location and try to do as much as you can to augment those environments to look. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm totally misreading what it was, but that's one of the things that I think you, you really hit on it, Jason, I think in a good way there. So to save people from writing in and emailing us, uh, it's Tangiers, I think. Tangiers. But okay. Um, there's a great anecdote that came out to your point, Matt, about (laughs) that, um, original sequence with the antennas apparently they were about to roll on one of those shots back in the you know first film and suddenly they noticed this really big antenna on this guy's house and they thought they got rid of them and they went up to see this guy and they were like what's the deal you've got an antenna and then somebody was like that wasn't here yesterday and he went 
it is now. <laughs> it worked out that all his friends had been paid to have their aerials taken down. So, oh, so he, made one he up. put one up. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> he no got, dummy. Man, do you even, he literally said, do you even have a TV? And he said, I have an antenna. <laughs> That's so good. I mean, I just thought that was such capitalism. a great uh, Yeah, yeah I mean, go. why not, right? <clears throat> I think here's uh, the thing. I in in um well I, this is a cinematography kind of blocking thing in modern filmmaking i don't want the cinematography to anticipate the action i don't want it to be perfectly mm-hmm. framed because if something unexpected is happening i want subliminally i guess the cinematographer to not have anticipated that with their framing yeah and in the older style uh thriller slash you know serial pictures that they're referring to that wasn't the case right they tried to get yep. the cinematography right so I feel like, yeah, what we're probably reacting to either consciously or unconsciously is or subconsciously is that they're getting it right in the some of those sequences a lot and they know kind of where the action's going to be so that the camera is well placed. Whereas if you look at a Ethan Hunt or go to something even more um sort of gritty, they they sort of the actors all suddenly punch somebody and go out of frame as if the cinematographer didn't know what was going to happen because he was documenting mm-hmm. it. And the ultimate example of that is when you go to those sort of sci-fi shots of the head in like Battlestar Galactica, the remake, when, you know, they'd be trying to follow a spaceship and they couldn't keep it in frame and you'd see them kind of hunting the shot. Yeah. And that hunting of the shot added such visual authenticity and it increased our our visual language and it Mm -hmm. it gave it such a, a believability that when you take that back out, you're not kind of sure what's missing, but it just seems... I don't know too perfect is the right word, but definitely the blocking and the framing, your point about the confetti, yeah, it looks yeah. magnificent in the way you couldn't pull off uh, unless you had. So it's the flip side, I guess, of the impossible CG camera, the impossible CG camera, you know, that can fly around yeah, and not yeah. do what a mechanical camera does. Well, it's not doing that. It's not flying around in and out and up and down and, you know, from axle wheels to the tops of buildings, but it is pulling off impressive feats of cinematography that wouldn't be possible if you had any of the actual variants on the day from doing all this stuff 100% for real. It might even take the crane crew, it takes a crane crew, you know, coordination to, to be the best crane crew. And even that crane crew couldn't follow organic action, right? Perfectly. Yeah. And so that when you said like the Ethan Hunt thing, I think it was in the last movie. There's a scene where they're going through, uh, where they're going through the tiny like French town or whatever it is, and he's got the, you know, he's he's clearly driving for real through those streets, him or a stuntman, right? Like there's, I'm sure there's CG, I'm sure there's inserts that are happening, but they're very seamlessly put in for cut purposes. But when you see a car driving down that street, it's a real car driving down the street for the most part, uh, and and. You know, there is a, there is to your point, Mike, there is an action to the camera guy, like trying to hold it on cruise, but he doesn't know what he's going to do. And so the framing's not all accurate. And that's, I think you voiced more eloquently what I was trying to say about the tuk-tuk inserts is that they're, they're like, they're like almost like locked off inserts. And it's like, yeah. where would that be locked off from? And if it was stuck on the, on the 
tuck tuck well it would be doing this so like yeah maybe have yeah. just a little to figure out how to do it handheld i don't know have someone kick I, the cinematographer while he's trying I mean, to imagine frame this up. compared I, to know. jason Bourne, right jason Bourne yeah. really took that to a spectacularly yeah. great level yeah the jumping um, out the window and across the alleyway and moving yeah. jumping with the camera like- and i would say too though i think that you know we're i think you guys definitely hit on something there that's totally true but i also think and this is to take nothing away from James Mangold as the director, but I think when I, for me, if, when I go see Indiana Jones, like I'm locked into this, like the mastery of, I mean, for my money, I think one of the greatest filmmakers to ever live is Steven Spielberg as a director and the Mm -hmm. choices he makes in terms of camera movement, motivated camera movement through the scene you know, actors, uh, little actions of actors doing little things like in rehearsal and then capturing those move- moments, like there's nobody like him. And I think when I go see this iconic character of um, Indiana Jones, like I, I that's I kind of am thinking I'm going to be in the hands of the greatest filmmaker, you know, of his generation by far. And I'm not saying Mangold's not a good director, but there's something else that isn't in this movie. And I think that's one of the things that for but me- If we use the James Bond franchise for a second, right? Like I, I completely agree with you. Like Spielberg is just remarkable. Yeah. <clears throat> but in the James Bond franchise, we we transitioned in the last Bond to that gritty style, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas it'd be like going to see a James Bond film where they're trying to make it look like The Spy Who Loved Me, yeah? With the camera work of The Spy Who Loved yeah. Me. And so then you kind of go- well, hang on. I I don't know this. I'm going to kind of articulate it, perhaps, but it feels of a different style, and I've kind totally. of got used to this grittiness. Totally. And the grittiness is now across all of those films, except for a franchise like Indie, which has stuck to Spielberg's uh, absolutely award-winning brilliance, but it's still of a time and of a look. And that's what happens when you make sequel of a sequel of a sequel, right? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, so you you are inherently in love with and limited by the visual language that the first films deployed, which in turn was beautifully reflective of the serial films that came, you know, sort of before them. So it's not that it's wrong. It's just no. a property of what you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. It's I physics. laugh when you yeah. mention James Bond and Rod, the Roger Moore era. It just makes me think of Steve <laughs> Coogan and Rob Brydon. Doing there, Roger Moore <laughs> for Queen and Country. Uh, I I so, will say, I, well, I will say quickly from a visual effects standpoint that I uh, of these three scenes, I thought I enjoyed the the Battle of Syracuse thing because it it you're it, it ties up everything you know from what he's showing in the class. And all the little things he points out in the class, like they crazy. They had these things that would like reach yeah. out and grab the ships and they had yeah. these mirrors for, and they show those, which are obviously story points, not visual effects. But I thought they did a good job of, of in these wide shots where you're, where hopefully the audience has been paying attention and goes, Oh, this is that there. Wait, where are they? Yeah, and you there's get the those, big mirror. Yeah. Yeah. You get the visual effects clues that, start to tell you like, oh, wait, we're not in, you know, uh, Munich or wherever we're trying to fly or Sicily rather. We're in just a different part of, you know, a time of Sicily. Um, and, you know, I, I think that sequence for me was very successful. I don't know that there was a ton of like, I mean, I think there was some, maybe some 
softness, weird softness stuff in the wides. Like, I don't know, um, maybe the ship. It was the lighting for me. It was just yeah, beautiful Yeah, that's lighting. what I'm saying. Like, yeah. so well lit, that sequence. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like, but- if you're having an actual battle, it didn't feel like, you know, all quiet on the Western Front battle. It felt like beautiful battle. And, and even the people were notionally dying. It didn't feel like it was yeah. blood and, yeah. you know, like compare that to landing on the beach at uh, Normandy, right? Where it's just yeah. so visceral and it's so gritty and it's so goddamn frighteningly realistic. Yeah, and but those, that's, Indy's no, never been that film. like No, violent. absolutely. That's yeah, my yeah, point yeah. though, right? So you can't yeah. go there. We've had those experiences though, right? Since yeah. the original indie film coming out, we've had all those experiences from yeah. the same filmmakers, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and they've educated us in a language and now they're going back to a different language and we're kind of yeah. reacting a You're little like, bit to- mm, well, it, yeah. it The set great. extensions in the 60s New York, I think were really well executed and it really felt like 60s New York, yeah. even if it did feel slightly magical in terms of sort of it's all shot kind of at magic hour, you know, and it has that kind of groovy yeah. vibe. Yeah. But I think those those work well. It's an environment that's more familiar. I think the you know the Battle of Syracuse um, extensions uh, did just didn't work as well because it felt much more like an artist rendering matte painting yeah, of an yeah. environment. You know, like because because it, sure. it's kind of what it is, right? Like the frame of reference for recreating that aesthetically is totally different. And to your point, Mike, I think like you know having had more occlusion, smoke, fire, you know, yeah. whatever in those different layers in between might've done a lot mm-hmm. to really hide some of the things that maybe were but just, you feel just like, a little less successful. But so what we're talking about here is visual effects, right? We're basically saying, yeah. okay, so you've got a, a toolbox of things that you can do to pull this shot off, but we need you to use only part of that palette because we want it to be stylistically of the same era yeah. as all these other films. And so if you're a visual effects artist, you say, well, I could make this look a hell of a lot more realistic if I did X, Y, and Z, right? And added camera shake and lens, lens right. flares. Oh, whoa, 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 we don't want all that. We want, we want it not to have that. But it would look more real if we did. And you'd be like, yeah, I know, but that's not what we want. And so, so the artists haven't failed, though I do no. agree that the New York stuff is impeccable in terms of your extension. I'm just saying yeah. like it doesn't resonate as being as... I guess the thing is we're using the wrong yardstick. We're using the yardstick of realism and, mm-hmm. and this is more fantasy. Effects. And this is exactly, yeah. it's more like a look that they're going for. And in that look, they've totally nailed it. It's right. just as an audience, I bump on it a little as a visual effects guy, because I'm like kind of used to this extra language and you're, you're limiting the artists to a particular palette yeah. and, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. style. I would yeah. concur. Yeah. Uh, I would also say just from a story point, cause I know we keep like, or at least I keep referencing to the clunkiness. I think you could, you could overlay the ear of Dionysus or whatever the cave was that they went into uh, that whole sequence till when they find the thing should have been more akin to Indy going into finding the grail uh, where he really had to stop and think and contemplate and there felt like there was danger if you know you have the ticking clock of his father you know dying so you have a number of things and in this the ticking clock was you know uh the bad guys are coming after me right pretty much there wasn't a there wasn't an additional ticking clock and it felt like the two of them solved the they're like Oh, I wonder what to do here. And they look up accidentally and they go, Oh, there it is. You know, like there was a couple of moments that were like, like 
they see the crescent on the wall from the sunlight through the cave. And when the bad guys get there, my kid leans over and he goes, they're not going to see the crescent because the light changed. Right. And then they look up and see the crescent. And I'm like, well, that they just removed a whole thing here. They could have just not had the crescent and had them have to figure something out through a different way because they have Mads Mickelson. He's smart. It's not like they're a bunch of dummies. Uh, and so it's just a couple missed these. Again, these are just plot things. They're not visual effects things. But uh, I think those kind of like really, you know, to your point, Matt, uh, <laughs> details yeah. uh, just sort of begin to make you then go, you start looking at the visual effects more maybe because you're like not being seeded by the plot as much. I think it just, the cumulative effect of the, the ways in which stylistically they choose to do some of the effects work, some of the environment mm -hmm. work, some of the design choices that are made that, you know, the effects artists are executing and following. I mm -hmm. think, you know, the overall veneer of those things cumulatively uh, for me, it's just, it has a different flavor yeah, as we've said now a couple of times, like it just has a mm -hmm. different flavor than the other previous uh, adventures with this iconic character. Mm -hmm. I, I I would say this right: if we were sitting here having watched a film where it was like Jason Bourne, that it did have grittiness, that it was blah blah blah, we'd be criticizing the shit out of it for like leaving a, and walking away from a beloved franchise. It, Absolutely. Like, you know, like I had a real bump and I adore the West Wing, but in West Wing, I'm going to say the last season or the second last season, they completely stylistically changed their look. They went from, you know, what was what you'd call um, book lighting, where you've got big area mm -hmm. lights on the actors and everyone looks really good to suddenly having this kind of not framed up well, much more realistic looking vibe. Um, which was just such a stylistic bump as it changed gears to be a, a show about the next election. But it looked like a completely different show. And I yeah. was just time and time again going, what the hell have you done to the cinematography? Like you just left it in one go. And I imagine somebody thought it was a good idea and, and maybe it was, but for me, it was like, took me out of the shows tremendously and mm -hmm. I adored the show. So yeah, I don't know they could have done anything different is my point. If they'd no. done something that was the way that the, like the Bond franchise could change because they changed Bonds. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, you're all, you know, bets are off. And they, I think they started the new one with a black and white sequence where he's beating up a guy in a, a toilet. Mm -hmm. Right. But it was just, this isn't your dad's James Bond. This isn't Roger Moore yeah. with, you know, like uh, horses, asses firing out um, or <laughs> fake horses, asses firing out uh, rockets and, and, you know, funny kind of one line gags. It was a whole different, more serious yeah, I mean version. And I think to your point, Mike, you're making a a, a land a, a legacy film that needs to be made in a legacy language to yep. an audience that's incredibly visually educated, even if they don't know it. This yeah. is your dad's Indiana uh, Jones. This is yeah. your dad's Indiana. Yeah. This yeah. is your grandfather's Indiana Jones. Which brings <laughs> the, to the the music analogy, right? If you go and see a band that has had six or seven great albums and they just want to play their new stuff, do you feel ripped off that they're just playing their new stuff and I wanted their old hits? And conversely, if you go and see a band that only plays their greatest hits, do you feel like, well, it was great, but it would have been better to see them in their days. Yeah, some this deep is all tracks. Yeah. They're just recycling kind of the Well, hits. yeah. Why would you make the first, the same record twice when you could listen to the first one twice, right? Exactly, I'm, yeah. And but so to, to the idea of music, though, that's the other big thing that I think was a, was a miss 
they don't use a lot of the iconic Indiana Jones themes in this, only in just tiny bits, sparsely placed yeah. throughout. And I think that was a mistake. <laughs> Because I think that that's also one of the things, the grandeur of the Raiders soundtrack, you know, and the different themes, even down to like the truck chase, you know, the kind of mm -hmm. the, the sort of march or whatever of that. Um, and then the the classic Indiana Jones march, like and Marion's theme, which we hear a little bit of. But I think mm -hmm. that that uh, there's not as much of an orchestral score throughout the film well, there is, no way that, the music. not one that's yeah. that's as uh thematically recognizable like well, i would have been I great think, to have a helena shaw theme you know like i didn't yeah <laughs> i mean i i think i think to your point if you go back and watch the first indiana jones like literally every time he does anything that has a modicum of action they throw in a little dun -dun -dun, like it even if it's turned around and played a little quietly like it's always like that's the guy. Hey, if you weren't paying attention, that's the dude. And that's you know I mean? part of your of your grandfather's yeah. Indiana Jones. Like that's exactly. part of that jam, you know. Yeah. If you want to play yeah. that. So now we're criticizing it for not doing that, right? Well, I, I guess that's what I'm saying. Well, it's I, like it's like they did it here, win. but they didn't do it here, you know. So it's like yeah. it's selective. Uh anyway. no, I'm fine for the I'm fine for how they made this film ultimately using the language of that era. I don't I think there's yeah. a way to do that and be more successful in some of the shots. I think the, um, I'd rather they have gone for the quote, we didn't use CG method and, and done some no, real physical, some real physical action in, in the Morocco thing. I was referring to like Top Gun and stuff like that, but, uh, <laughs> oh, don't even start me on that. Okay. Yeah. So we but will anyway, discuss but, that, but yeah, not now. Well, but yeah, so all I'm saying is, <laughs> is I don't think it's an issue of visual effects, specifically of visual effects not being able to be used up to the standard that people are expecting currently. Yeah. I think it's a choice by the director and the production team to not have done as much physical production to make up for the fact that they may, this is these are assumptions on our part, may have limited the palette of the visual effects team to match, you know, some legacy, you know, uh, feels. The New York yeah, stuff to I, me is equivalent to the you know stuff Brainstorm Digital did for um, Boardwalk Empire. It's the same kind of groove, and it's it works perfectly. It's stylized. It's uh, yeah. I mean, I yeah, it, it works. It's consistent. It's just yeah. Th there's I mean, we, some we, choices that I think could have still been yeah. stylistically consistent, but maybe might have been. Well, we've notionally said they've limited their palette a little on those sequences we've been talking about for the latter part of this podcast. They obviously expanded their palette to be able to do the old indie, right? So it's not as if the of whole course, indie. yeah. But that's hey, a so different visual effect, yeah. Exactly, yeah. I just want to clarify for the audience: so we're not saying that they yeah, have yeah. one hand tied behind their back the right. whole thing. So if you can't do this, but if you were in a position to be looking at next year's Oscar Bake Off crowd, would you be at all surprised if this film was in the Bake Off? Now you don't know what else there is going to be, but does it feel like it would be at at a Bake Off level for visual effects? I think for the opening sequence alone, it should be considered, you know, it'll the be in the rest of the stuff. It, it won't get selected for the final, but it'll That's, be at the bake off. It, it'll be in the long list, but it won't make the short list. That's my prediction. Well, you, I mean, okay, that's terribly kind of you, but I don't know that we have any idea what else it's going to be up against in terms of we've only seen a few of the Oh, I think I have some attention. ideas of what it'll be up against already. <laughs> I think we know a few. 
<laughs> we know a few, but there's going to be some between now and, and the Christmas releases, right? The your yeah. uh, what is it Thanksgiving um, <laughs> kind of uh, release schedule. But yeah, okay. Yeah. So Barbie, Barbie alone. Yeah. Well, Oppenheimer, of course. Barbie, um, yes. So, <laughs> so while we're on that score, guys, listening to us as you have been patiently, um, we're going to be uh, trying to cover off a bunch of the. Uh, U.S. summer releases, so that includes Barbie, Oppenheimer, hopefully um, Mission Impossible, because uh, there are a lot of really good films coming out now. I definitely would say this is a good film, and I'd recommend for people to go and see it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but of Me course, too. on the VFX show, we're just picking it apart from a visual effects point of view and trying I to cried. understand. I the, cried uh, at the end. You know, it still works. It still works as a movie. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it still works as a great. Uh, thing to do and enjoy, like on a date night. I certainly went on date night with my wife, and we had a great time. Right, and only later do I got into this kind of nitpicking kind of phase. But uh, <laughs> that's what we do. Hey, so uh, it's been great having you guys on the show. We're, as we said, we're going to do a bunch coming up. But um, Matt, where can people connect with you if they want to find where you are? And uh, I'm on Mastod- Mastodon social at Matt Wallen, but and I'm also trying out the new uh, what's it called. Threads. Uh, threads they were saying what are you going to call it is it still a tweet is it a post i think it should be it's a thread tr- it's a tread you tread it's on threads tread. hey and um i just wanted to note to my wife in 2017 painted the anthocara mechanism this was a study for oh. a larger oil painting so um, nice. i'll put that on my website but <laughs> but it's awesome. just kind of cool like so. put it on the show notes oh cool right on but yeah that's so where i am I, you can find me in all those places and trying out the the threads <laughs> the threads yeah yeah uh, do we want to invest more in the facebook meta empire i feel like probably not <laughs> yeah I, I hold out hopes for blue sky speaking of which if anyone's got any invitations feel free <laughs> to send them my way my friends i will hour. be forever I believe that's an I will, hour away yeah hour. Yeah. okay we will we'll give you we will invite you on the show uh to co-host an episode with us if we get uh invitations hey, there you from go. You. There you go. pure um, jason what about you uh, I am at Jason Diamond everywhere. You can type that in. And uh, yeah, I'm around. And to follow up on somebody who emailed me, yes, Jason and I are friends and Jason will one day consent to do the interview that I've been promising for the last yes. three months. Yes, it's not a consent issue. I've, I've fully consented. Um, and of course, uh, I'm Mike Seymour over on the uh, normal places that you'd find me, especially uh, FX Guide. Um, and uh We've mentioned ILM a lot. I don't think ILM was the only company, but it was the principal company that worked uh, on this film. And we just focus in on their work because they were the uh, lead visual effects house. And ILM's doing a lot of really good work lately. So that's uh, that's great to see. Um, as I said, we'll be uh, amping up over the summer. So if there are any of those films that you really want to see, in particular Oppenheimer, feel free to email us. And uh, we look forward to talking about them in the uh, weeks coming ahead. Thanks so much, guys. Or even, yeah, or you hold on before you go, or oh, even yeah. some lesser known films we may not know about that have good visual effects. Send them our way and we'll watch them. Like That is true. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to yes. just do the uh, the big ones. So it's a great time to... Um, uh, to have some uh, fun in the uh, popcorn aisles of Multiplex. All right, guys, thanks so much. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.